Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. This is a, a passage that we've spent the last couple weeks uh, walking our way through, and we're going we're gonna to bring it to a conclusion this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and uh, grab one of the pew Bibles from the back of the pew in front of you uh, and follow along as I read. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. In many ways, this this passage functions as the concluding summary for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, In verses 10 to 12, he's, he's given us a glimpse of the spiritual battle that we all face. And in verse 13, he gives us this this charge to stand firm. Then in verses 14 to 17, uh, he he explains that we must don a set of spiritual armor if we're going to stand in this battle. That spiritual armor is, is a metaphor of how we are to live in light of the gospel. We are to we are to be filled with this gospel and transformed by it. Now, in verses 18 to 20, he closes with a discussion regarding prayer, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. But before we launch into this, can we be honest with each other for a second? Can I at least be be honest with you? This, This is a difficult topic to preach on, prayer. Prayer is a difficult topic to preach on. And there's two main reasons why it is a difficult topic to preach on. The first reason is that I I cannot study this passage and prepare this message without becoming very aware of my own shortcomings in this area. And the second reason is, uh, as I preach this message, I'm also very aware that there are many of you in this room who are also very aware of your own shortcomings when it comes to prayer. This is not the first message that you've heard preached about prayer. This is not the first time that you've been instructed as to its importance. And this is not the first time that you have heard a call to preach or to to pray diligently. And yet, I would say that this is still probably a struggle for most of us in this room. 
So I want to take a, a different approach to this as I begin this morning. I'm not going to open with, with reminders to you about the importance of prayer or even uh, offer you a call to pray more diligently because I, I don't think that that is going to help you any more than it has helped you in the past. Instead, I want to begin by probing the root of that problem because I believe what Paul says about prayer in this passage actually confronts us in our struggle with prayer. That's how I'm going to start, and then we'll dig a little bit more into the instructions that Paul gives us in this passage. The reason why you experience shortcomings when it comes to prayer is because there is something seriously wrong with you. Okay? There is something seriously wrong with you. And I don't mean that, but when I say that, I don't mean that there is something with you personally as an, invi- as an individual that is somehow deviant or abnormal. I mean to say that we collectively, as human beings, have certain tendencies within our nature that make prayer difficult for us. It's, it's, sometimes uh, prayer is, is just awkward and, and clunky and, and difficult. Have you ever experienced that? Sort of, sometimes it feels like a right-handed person trying to use left-handed scissors. The root of our problem is actually pride. And I wonder if that surprises some of you. Maybe some of you that are sitting here this morning thinking that you struggle with prayer wouldn't necessarily characterize yourself as a prideful person. And truth be told, I know people who I would characterize as humble, who I know struggle with prayer. But... uh, I'm not saying that everyone who struggles with prayer this morning is is arrogant or or conceited or puffed up, uh, which is how we tend to think about pride, I think. But pride has many different manifestations. It's, It's one of the characteristics of it that makes it such a difficult and insidious sin to deal with. And what I mean to say this morning is that there is a particular manifestation of pride Uh, that is common to humanity by nature, that makes it difficult for us. It creates a natural barrier for us when it comes to prayer. And I'd like to illustrate that for you this morning by telling you the story of how I wrecked my first car. My wife and I dated uh, throughout the majority of my college career. And during my sophomore year, during our sophomore year, uh, we decided that I would leave over Christmas break, I would leave my parents' house a week early and, and go down to New Jersey and spend that last week of Christmas break with her and her family. She's, she's cute, and uh, it's frankly very hard to be away from her for that long. And at this point, I had not seen her in almost a month. So needless to say, I awoke on the morning of my departure, and I was ready and anxious to be on my way. Now, unfortunately, my, my dad arrived home from work that morning, uh, he works very early in the morning, he, he pulled me aside and he said to me in a very gentle and, and wise and loving fashion, something along the lines of, now I, I know what you're feeling. If I was in your shoes, I would feel the same way. But it's a New York January morning out there. It is extremely cold. It is very windy. The wind has been blowing the snow around on the roads. And uh, the plows haven't been out for a while. The back roads are very, very bad. And the main roads aren't much better. 
He said, when you, get to the, when you get to the highway, the highway might be fine. But, if it were me, I would probably wait a day. The older I get, the wiser my dad gets. <laughs> now, let me pause in my narrative for a moment to give you some background information. My parents live at the bottom of a valley in New York. They also live on a dirt road. And this road, to, to get to a main road from my parents' house, you have to go up over a steep hill, down the other side, and, and this road is one that, even in, in good weather, it's not real great to drive on. That went through my mind for about two seconds. Probably one second. It was followed very loudly by these four thoughts. Number one, I know how to drive in the snow. I grew up in New York. I learned how to drive in the snow. This ain't my first rodeo. Number two, I won the driver's education award in high school for the best combined (laughs) class and road score. I'm also very cautious by nature, and I took a a defensive driving course to lower my insurance rate. Okay, I'm, I'm a pretty good driver. Number three, I'll only be on back roads for about four miles. And these are roads that I have either ridden on or driven on for my entire life. I know those roads like the back of my hand. Number four, my car is front-wheel drive and it is equipped with four good snow tires. So my, the wonder, the biological wonder that is the human brain took that information, added it all up, and offered to me the following suggestion. Steve, Your abilities are more than enough to handle this situation. You'll be fine. Well, this intrepid, lovesick wonder boy set out. And I noticed immediately that here and there, there were patches of ice on the road. But I made it to the top of the hill with uh, very little difficulty. The, The road had actually been cindered I had enough traction that getting to the top of the hill wasn't very difficult. I was encouraged by that. And I figured that would be the hardest part. So before I proceeded down the other side of the hill, I'm about two and a half miles from my parents' house, I downshifted so I wouldn't have to break as much and proceeded down the hill. And as I progressed, my confidence grew. Things were going quite smoothly. Now about three quarters of the way down this hill, there's a slight bend in the road, bends to the left. And as I entered this corner, I turned the steering wheel. I eased the steering wheel gently to the left. My execution was flawless. (laughs) My technique was profound. It was a thing of beauty, the way I turned that steering wheel. I wish you could have seen it. I really do. But a funny thing happened. My car, despite my abilities and my stunning technique, did not turn. So I turned the steering wheel a little farther, and it still didn't turn. So I turned the steering wheel a little farther. I turned the steering wheel as far as it would go to the left, and my car still did not turn. And I was brought face to face with the sudden and brutal realization that I, in and of myself, did not have the ability to handle this situation. 
Before my very eyes, an astonishing transformation had taken place. My car, with the appropriate ratio of weight, speed, snow, and ice, had transformed into a ballistic missile. (laughs) I was no longer driving. The laws of physics were. I plowed through a drainage ditch, sideswiped a pair of trees, which thankfully brought me to a stop before I went headfirst into a ravine. On a trip of approximately 250 miles, I made it a grand total of three. Now, I have emphasized for you in my narrative the foolishness that I displayed. But it's also important to note that at the time, I thought that my actions were not only not foolish, I thought they were perfectly reasonable. I was completely convinced. I I figured I could handle that situation. I had no doubt. What I displayed that day is a manifestation of pride, one that is fairly common. See, we have a tendency to overestimate our abilities in a given situation, and in light of that, to underestimate the severity of our situation. This is the tendency exhibited by people who stay behind when evacuation orders are given in the face of a hurricane. This is the tendency that's exhibited by individuals who try and swim across rivers thinking they can make it and end up drowning. Humans, especially modern westernized humans like us, tend to believe that they are indomitable. Indomitable. I think I'm saying that right. The inevitable result of this pattern of thinking is that we will not truly believe that prayer is an absolute necessity. If I believe that I, in and of myself, am able to control the outcome of most of the situations that I encounter in life, then I can afford to be lazy about prayer because I won't see a need for it. If we're going to move to a point where we begin to see prayer as necessary, we must first part ways with this notion. And here's why. Paul in this passage has just described for us a situation that we cannot handle on our own. Okay, we we cannot handle this situation on our own. Paul essentially says in this passage, everything that I have just told you in the paragraphs preceding this is absolutely necessary. You must believe the truths that I have related to you. You must turn those truths into virtues that characterize your life, which you are not naturally inclined to do. And you must do it in the midst of a battle with an enemy that is vicious, cunning, deceitful, and in every way more capable of winning than you. How do you stand against an opponent that you cannot see? For that matter, how do we take abstract theological concepts like truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, and salvation, how do we take those concepts and turn them into concrete uh, methods of standing? How exactly does one don the helmet of salvation? How exactly does one put on the new self, as Paul calls us to do in Ephesians 4.24? Beyond that, even in Ephesians 4.23, he told us to be made new in the attitude of our minds. Note that that is a passive activity. 
That's something that's done to us, not something that we bring about. How exactly does that happen? Paul has already mentioned that one of the means of bringing these changes about is the sword of the Spirit. In verse 17, he says that that is the Word of God. The Word of God will help you to stand in the midst of this battle because it will teach you what the theological concepts pictured in the armor of God are. It teaches you what truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, and salvation are. There's an element here of of knowing. The question is, how do we move from knowing to being? What steps do we take to translate truth into virtues? The answer is, we pray. Prayer is the second means at our disposal for standing in the midst of this conflict and beyond that, for living a life worthy of the calling that we have received. The main idea for my sermon this morning is the fundamental idea that Paul has behind, behind his instructions and the reason why prayer is absolutely necessary in the life of a Christian. Prayer unleashes the power of the gospel. Prayer unleashes the power of the gospel. That is, prayer is foundational to our growth in the gospel, and prayer is foundational in our efforts to spread the gospel. It does not unleash the power of the gospel by magic. Okay, we're, not, we're not waving the magic wand of Jesus over our circumstances and, and trying to string together just the right sequence of words so that we can manipulate spiritual forces. Okay? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't unleash the power of the gospel by creating an atmosphere that is uh, conducive to growth, by, by you know, filling it with positive energy. Okay? This, this is Pauline theology we're talking about, not Dr. Phil theology or Oprah theology. The way that prayer unleashes the power of the gospel is by the power of the chief agent whom we involve when we pray, the Holy Spirit. Paul highlights this power by the first statement he makes about prayer. He says, pray in the Spirit, in verse 18. And uh, to illustrate this, what what Paul is doing here, I want to continue the, the pep talk metaphor that Pastor Joel introduced last week. If verses 10 to 17 were a pep talk, it would be one of the worst pep talks ever given. Paul has essentially walked into the locker room, held up a football, and said, Boys, this is the Gospel. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. The Eagles need this pep talk. Your opponents are bigger than you tougher than you, stronger than you, faster than you, smarter than you, meaner than you. They're going to take cheap shots and they're going to keep hitting you all day long. When you get back in here at halftime, you're going to want to curl up in your locker and you're going to want to cry. Now go out there and don't give any ground. And you can see little Johnny in the back raising his hand and saying, ah, Coach, how are we going to do that in this game? We don't stand a chance. 
So in verse 18, Coach Paul walks over to the locker room door, opens it up, and in walks Superman. Paul points to him and says, just give the ball to him. He'll take care of the rest. If we are engaged in spiritual warfare, who better to have on our side than the greatest spirit of all, the most powerful spirit of all, the Holy Spirit? More to the point, if we are engaged in spiritual warfare and we have at our disposal the greatest possible resource, why wouldn't we use it? If we are going to stand, if we are going to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received and not fall to the schemes of the evil one, we must stop trying to do it on our own and start pleading with God to give us the grace that we need by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the foundation for the instructions that Paul gives us about prayer. Prayer is necessary because through the Holy Spirit, it unleashes the power of the gospel. And for the remainder of this message, we're going to move quickly through the instructions that Paul gives us regarding prayer. Paul's instructions highlight two ways that we should pray. And I'm going to add a third way based on how Paul has modeled prayer in the book of Ephesians. So three ways that we should pray. Number one, verse 18 teaches us to pray like lives are at stake. Pray like lives are at stake. In this verse, Paul essentially tells us that we should cultivate a wartime prayer mentality. He warns the Ephesians to, pray, to be ready to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests and to continually uphold other Christians in prayer. Uh, this reminded me of uh, something that occurred back in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, in those days, it, it was fairly common in schools uh, for the schools to hold air raid drills for the threat of a nuclear attack. While the students were going about their business, an air raid siren would sound, and the students would drop whatever they were doing, math, English, whatever, they would drop whatever they were doing and take action immediately. Actions that they hoped would save their lives in, in the event of an actual nuclear attack. Communities developed these drills because they recognized the reality and the severity of the threat that they faced. And they took steps to, be, to remain alert and prepared. And Paul is warning the Ephesians along the same lines. Paul's rationale for these instructions is the nature of the battle that we're engaged in. It will not be a fair fight. Satan will press every advantage. He'll make you stand watch all night and then attack at dawn from the east when he knows you're bone tired and the sun is in your eyes. He won't directly assault your core convictions, but he will slowly and subtly work to undermine them. Like a a slow but steady stream of water eroding bedrock. Consider that he waited 40 days until Christ had been in the desert 40 days without food before he tempted him. And with Eve, he raised doubts rather than arguments. And he tried to derail Christ's redemptive work, uh, not by confronting him directly, but through the admonitions of one of his closest friends. You ever think about how, how natural 
and sympathetic an idea it would have been for Peter to try and convince Jesus that his ministry need not cost him his life. But Jesus was was prepared for that. He knew the source behind the argument. And his rebuke is as much of a wake-up call to us as it was to Peter. See, our enemy is bent on our destruction. And he will use whatever means he possibly can. He will exploit any weakness that he can to destroy your soul. And for that reason... We must be ready to pray in the Spirit on all occasions, not just in crisis. Paul tells us to pray with all kinds of prayers and requests. And the emphasis here, I think, is on our need and the the willingness and the ability of God to supply. And I think that this instruction points out sort of what you might look at as an ironic nature of prayer. It's, It's one of the reasons why we don't turn to it as often as we should. You know, it's, it's a humbling experience to have need and to have to confess that need and depend on someone who does not. And yet, being in that position, being in the position where you recognize that of yourself, that is when you are most clearly seeing yourself, your circumstances, and God Himself. A child has no shame in coming to his father and asking for something that he needs. It's not a shameful thing for my kids to come to me and ask for what they need. In fact, it honors me. There's no shame in this state of dependence or in the admission of it. And in that act of humility, you are striking a far more decisive blow to the attacks of the enemy than you would if you had done so under your own power. And lastly, Paul tells us to pray for each other. We're comrades in arms. Okay, we're in this together. Several commentators have pointed out that many of the themes that Paul raises in Ephesians culminate in these ten verses in chapter 6. And this instruction is one such occurrence. Uh, this instruction here is the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4 all over again. Just as we minister to one another and push each other on toward maturity in Christ by using the spiritual gifts that God has given us, uh, we can serve one another, we can minister to one another by praying for one another. Let me read for you again what what Paul said in Ephesians 4, starting at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when He ascended on high, He led captives in His train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Listen to this. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, 
grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Brothers and sisters, what a gift we are to each other from Christ Himself. What a beautiful picture of the church. This is a beautiful picture of what happens when we serve one another by the grace of God and praying for each other to reach maturity and and the, the fullness of Christ is one of the primary ways in which we should be serving one another. We should pray for one another. Secondly, from verses 19 to 20, we should pray like souls are at stake. Pray like souls are at stake. Paul tells us that we should pray specifically for the proclamation of the gospel. We should not only be praying that the gospel be taking root and bearing fruit in the lives of other believers, but we should also be praying for the spread of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is personal for Paul because this is the ministry that he is actively engaged in. And it's a poignant message for us because if there's anything that American evangelical Christians do less than pray, it's evangelize. Paul asks prayer for two reasons. The first is that the Gospel is a mystery to be made known. It's something that's hidden from those with whom he is sharing it that must be revealed to them. Evangelists preach to those who are spiritually dead. And with that in mind, Paul asks that the Ephesians pray specifically that words be given to him. And he asks for this because he knows that when it comes to preaching the Gospel, conversion will not happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The the dead don't need medicine, they need a miracle. The dead cannot comprehend the mystery on their own. They cannot make themselves understand. They cannot make themselves alive again. And Paul has no control over that either. He knows that. The only one who can do that is God. The second reason he gives is because he is an ambassador in chains. And that that phrase is, is somewhat paradoxical. And it's loaded with meaning. And I think recent events can kind of help us understand uh, what Paul is saying here. On, uh, on September 11th of this year, at the U.S. Embassy in Libya, U.S. Ambassador to Libya, J. Christopher C. Stevens, was killed by terrorists. Now, it's, it's an understatement to say that there is a considerable amount of controversy surrounding the events that occurred on that day. But if we can sort of just set politics aside for a moment, the mere fact that an ambassador, an active ambassador, was deliberately targeted and executed is profoundly shocking. Ambassadors are typically granted diplomatic immunity and a certain level of respect because of their representative role. They're there under the auspices of a greater entity. Ambassador Stevens was targeted because he was the ambassador because he represented the United States. And that stands in stark contrast to the respect that is typically granted to that office. And Paul writes this request for prayer as one who has been beaten and imprisoned precisely because he is an ambassador for Christ. He characterizes his life and ministry as that of one who has had the responsibility 
placed upon him to represent someone else. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says that because we have been given the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. But there is no respect or immunity granted to this office. This phrase is an apt description of our situation in this world, which follows the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors without honor. Ambassadors who can and should expect to be abused and mistreated. I don't have to tell you that the world is often, often open, openly hostile to the message of the Gospel. And Paul knows that firsthand. Remember, he's, he's writing this letter from captivity, possibly even while being chained to a soldier. Yet fear of such abuse should not hinder the proclamation of the Gospel. And I know that's a fact that we all know is much easier to affirm than it is to apply. In light of that, Paul requested that the Ephesians pray specifically that he would preach fearlessly as he should. We're not promised immunity. In fact, suffering to some degree or another is very nearly assured. But in evangelism, fear and the Gospel are mutually exclusive. Because fear demands that I protect my life at whatever cost, no matter what the cost. And the Gospel demands that I seek to protect the souls of everyone around me, no matter what the cost. We should never forget that the Gospel, by the grace of God, has the power to make alive those around us who are dead in their trespasses and sins. The Gospel is their only hope. Pray like souls are at stake. Third, and in conclusion... We should pray like Paul. We should pray like Paul. As I mentioned, I, I've incorporated this point not because it's explicit in the text, but because Paul has already modeled in this letter the type of prayer that I think is very helpful for us in our endeavor to stand firm and appropriate the armor of God. He wrote out two of his prayers for us, one in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and the second in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Uh, let's, let's read those prayers together, and then I want to discuss some of the themes that are involved in those prayers. We'll start with Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. Follow along with me as I read. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, 
power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Then flip over to chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. While Paul makes no direct mention of of standing or of a spiritual battle, the requests that he makes are meant to equip the Ephesians so that they will be able to stand in, in the battle. And there are two things that I want to point out from these prayers. First of all, number one, we should pray for sanctification. Notice what his main concern is for the Ephesians. It's crystallized in Ephesians 3.19. He says that they may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. And he makes allusion to that in, in chapter 1, verse 23, when he identifies the church as Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And this actually helps us to define more completely what the armor of God is. It's the culminating work of the gospel in our lives. It's, it's sanctification. It's taking the knowledge of who God is and what He has done and using that to transform our lives so that we will not fall into sin. And Paul briefly fleshes out what this looks like. I mentioned a little bit earlier the idea that we stand by knowing and we stand by being. And there are elements of that in in Paul's prayers here. The first prayer, he prays that God would enable the church to know God better. And in the second prayer, his desire is that the Ephesians would know the love of Christ. And hand in hand with that knowledge is virtue. And this is where we enter the realm of being because virtue is truth applied to how we live. There are three particular virtues in these prayers that Paul mentions. Faith, hope, and love. Elsewhere in in 1 Corinthians 13 Paul identifies those three virtues as virtues which will not pass away. In other words, they they will not cease. They're, They're virtues that remain. In a world where change is constant, where powers rise and fall, and everything is in bondage to decay and sin and death, Paul effectively holds out to us three virtues that stand. We should pray for that. The second thing to note from these prayers is where Paul's confidence lies. We should pray with confidence in God's power. Do you notice that he spends quite a bit of time in these prayers making a big deal about God's power? 
It's interspersed throughout both prayers. And I want to look specifically at how uh, his, his discussion of God's power culminates in both prayers. In the first prayer, Paul's celebration of God's power culminates in his praise of one specific act. It's, it was God's work, his, his exertion to exalt Christ as head over everything. And that includes all rule and authority, power and dominion, which refers not only to human rulers and authorities, but also uh, Satan and the rest of the demonic forces that are arrayed against us. In the second prayer, it culminates in a doxology or in worship. And it's a fitting response. For Paul points out that God's power is not only able to do more than we can ask or imagine, it's also at work within us. And with immeasurable power at God the Father's disposal, with God the Son exalted over all rule and authority, and with God the Holy Spirit not simply near at hand, but dwelling within us, Doesn't that sort of make neglecting to pray seem about as foolish as driving downhill over snow-covered ice with complete confidence? Let's pray together. God, our Father, when we consider Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place? What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we pray that you would increase our knowledge of who you are. Help us to know you. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you transform us? Would you help us to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness? Fit our feet with the gospel of peace, that we may carry it into this battle for souls, to win the hearts of men for you, and that it in turn may carry us. Help us to take up the shield of faith and to put on the helmet of salvation. Help us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is your word. And Father, help us to pray. Help us to be humble enough to pray so that we may stand firm in your immeasurable power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.